I think one of the things I always say, whether it's Cartel Land or, or City of Ghosts or this film I just made about COVID, um, is if we can at least attempt to allow audience members to feel what we felt in that room, in that stadium, in that shootout, in that meth lab, in wherever you are, if we can put you on the ground there and make you feel those emotions, then we've you know, somewhat succeeded. Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. In this episode, director Matthew Heinemann takes us behind the scenes of his new documentary, The Boy from Medellin. The film provides an immersive look at a dramatic week in the life of international superstar Jay Balvin, as he prepares for his sold-out stadium concert in his hometown of Medellin, Colombia, public pressure and political unrest grow around him, forcing him to reflect on how he will use his voice. The Boy from Medellin was screened as part of the DGA's documentary series, which aims to spotlight groundbreaking nonfiction films by presenting screenings of documentaries, as well as conversations with their directors. In addition to The Boy from Medellin, Mr. Heinemann's filmography includes the documentary feature Escape Fire, The Fight to Rescue American Healthcare, and episodes of the television documentary miniseries Tiger and The Trade. He is a two-time winner of the DGA's Documentary Award for 2017's City of Ghosts and 2015's Cartel Land, and was nominated for the DGA's First Time Feature Film Award for his 2018 debut narrative feature, A Private War. Following the documentary series screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Mr. Heinemann spoke with director Andy Timoner about filming The Boy from Medellin. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation. I think it's one of the, I just, I, I guess it's your first time ever seeing it projected because of COVID. Is that right? It is my first time, yes. How was it? Uh, it was amazing, yeah. <laughs> it's so I mean, not beautiful. The film, but the sound was amazing. I was just asking you what you shot it on because it's gorgeous. It's abs- the color. I mean, he's so colorful and his motif is so colorful, but the cameras you were using were just, I mean, just picked up every. I've, I've never seen anything so just beautiful in terms of co- crowd shots there at the end. Thank you. Yeah, you said, how many people did you have shooting that last concert? The concert, we had, I think, 12 cameras. Okay. And where were you? I was Running around? A, or? I was in a control room, sort of with like a headset. Directing? Um, yeah. the Directing it live? Yeah. Wow. And, and you told me also during dinner that you had never shot concert before this film. Never shot a con- I've never shot more than two cameras in my life, so... <laughs> That's um, amazing. And we had about a week to prep for it. So because in the I've shot a lot of concerts um, and that shot in Mexico in that first concert, when you get behind him and there's that glowing white light and then there's all the phones, it, it's like the dream shot. I mean, I've never actually seen a concert shot that's that perfect. You know, it's a beautiful shot. Yeah. And it really speaks to what he's talking about, which is, is probably a big part of why you did this. Tell me about how you ended up making this film. Yeah, I mean, so Jose um, and his team reached out to me. Um, I was always interested in making a film about music and you know, maybe making you know, a concert doc. Um, and I met him after a show that he played at Madison Square Garden. And we just, we connected. He talked a lot about his own battles with mental health and anxiety and depression, something that I've dealt with myself. And yeah, we just, we just 
connected and, and I felt like to me, whenever I look at a film, you know, I always want to try to say something hopefully bigger or deeper than just what's on the surface. And I knew just in that sort of 30 minute conversation that he would make himself vulnerable. Um, I had no idea that when we'd land in, in Medellin, that the protests would happen, that the, that the film would become a verite film about really an artist, you know, struggling to find his voice. Um, but that's what the, the film became. I was actually going to ask you about that because I, as an artist, struggle with that as a filmmaker, um, becoming an activist, we, we kind of threaten our access, like our access becomes at risk because we're taking a side. And, um, I wonder if that was part of why he was reluctant. You know, he said at first, it's like the role of the artist to really just make people feel better or get, bring people together. And if you're saying one side or the other, then that was the risk maybe. You know, almost like Taylor Swift went through. Um, but yeah, tell me about that arc. What happened with him there? Yeah, I mean, I think he, I think a lot of things, I mean, I, hopefully a lot of it's shown in the movie, but I think he felt like he really put himself out there in, in talking about his own battles with mental health as a, you know, a man from Colombia. That's not something that people generally talk about. And I felt like he sort of felt like he'd already put himself out there a lot. And you know, I think this week was really reckoning about politically what was his role, you know, as, as one of the most famous people in Colombia, obviously everyone was looking to him to say something. And, and as you said, like he felt like he was just an entertainer. Um, and so it was, you know, we, uh, you know, you can't plan this stuff as a documentary filmmaker, but to have this sort of prism of this one week to sort of have a man reckoning with himself, um, seeking the counsel of his friends and his, and his colleagues, um, to try to understand that role, uh, was, was fascinating. Was the turning point for him, the boy who was killed and, and, and sort of where did you, when did it bubble up for you? Like, Oh my God, this is happening. I've got to go and, and get this because it's reminded me of your work with cartel land. You know, I imagine you're probably the person filming a lot of that. It didn't look like archival that you acquired. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to be honest, I mean, we went down there kind of making a very, thinking we were going to make a very traditional sort of music doc, crescendoing with this concert, interviewed his family. I mean, we did interview, I mean, tons and tons of interviews um, through that week with everyone around him. But I instantly felt like I could make a verite film that I could make a sort of fly on the wall. And so while we had that and that stuff in the can, you know, no one's ever seen it because yeah, just the DNA of the film completely changed. And that was, it was so exciting to be able to sort of shoot. Um, we were shooting like 18 hours a day and we were shooting, we, from the moment he woke up to when he went to bed. And this is a guy who obviously has had cameras around him his whole life. Um, or his whole sort of professional life. And I don't think he'd ever had cameras around him in, in this way. And, you know, for me as a filmmaker, and, and I mean, you know, those two obviously is, is that trust and that rapport is generally built over weeks or months. And I had to build that like instantly. <laughs> and, you know, I told myself I had this one week window to make this film and you have to find the story within this week. So it was just a really, it was a really fun, um, artistic challenge. And, um, yeah. 
when I first did commercials, that's why I liked doing them. It was because it was like, oh my gosh, after making documentaries that span years to do something that's that short, it's like, it's really like sport fishing or something. It's like, oh my God, you got to get in there and get it and get out, you know? And um, I think in a way, it's almost like shooting on film, you know, how they say everybody brings their A game because it matters because you're rolling celluloid and you don't have that much of it. Um, you didn't have that much time, you know? And so, yeah, I was, I, I mean, I think watching it again tonight, you know, it really impresses me because a lot of these, I don't like a lot of music. I'm very critical of music films having made dig. And I just, I always feel like there needs to be a narrative that transcends the fan base. And, um, you know, I feel like with this, you managed to do that. And it's a, a matter of your skills and also what happened in that week. But um, it, it is, it does become really a study of like, what is our position as artists? And, and uh, you know, he goes from, okay, I, I have to, I've exposed myself emotionally. Now I have to expose myself politically. Um, and you must have felt totally torn because you're used to doing films about verite films and, and out in the streets. And you did, you, when did you do that shot with him where he's walking through the crowd out in the streets and you're showing him as a man of the people, which is great and important. But was that like before the protests broke out? Like, that was, I mean, as you saw, it was, it was, was it quite exactly early, early in the, in that week. Yeah. Early in that week. Yeah. <laughs> it was like a day before, two days before probably that happened. Right. Like he's in the streets oh, and yes, the next yes. thing, the streets explode yeah. and then everything's getting canceled and possibly the show, I would imagine. That was always sort of the, the tension point of, yeah, would the show actually happen? Right. And then you mentioned that everything got changed up on you. Tell me about that. Usually an artist, when they're playing a show this big, has access to the arena quite a bit in advance. So they said at one point in the film, yeah, they're going to go down there and practice every day. So did that happen and how did things change? Yeah, I mean, again, I'd, I'd never shot a multi-cam shoot before, and and we sort of literally plotted it like that week as I'm shooting <laughs> 18 hours a day of Verite. Um, and then they completely changed the stage setup, uh, I think, either the day of or the day before the concert. So, yeah, I mean, but that's what we do is we react to things and we do the best we can and hopefully, yeah, we did an okay job of, of covering it. Um, the thing we didn't know was Jay-Z called Jose to um, congratulate him on the concert. And, and then Scooter Ron, his manager, sort of challenged him. Um, Kanye and, and Jay-Z had, had toured together and played a song, I think, 11 times in a row or 10 times in a row. And so they challenged Jose to play this song Blanco that, that you see right before he makes a speech. 12 times. So we ended up literally playing that song for 45 minutes from like 1 a.m. to 2 a.m. And he still had not spoken. And so I was just like, is there going to be an end to this movie? Is there an end to this concert? We weren't sure if he was actually going to say anything. Um, oh and but so, you, he had told you he was going to say something. I, I didn't know. No, I had no idea. Yeah. Oh, so you didn't know. But he but the challenge was on the table. Like, are you actually going to stand up yeah, for the, the youth of this country? Yeah, that was the sort of that was the. Yeah. Yeah. The arc that we thought might happen, but we didn't know. I love when you're like 11, he's like 11, 10, one, two, three, four hours. <laughs> and then they go back out on stage. So it was like a five hour show or something. 
I think it's four and a half hour, yeah. Something like that. And then you knew to get in the car, like was he, does he typically drive himself out of a venue? I had no idea that he, so that was the first time that I actually had walked out of the control room and I literally grabbed my camera and just jumped in the car. I, I didn't know where we were going, what was happening. Um, so that whole scene was, yeah, just just me in the back of the car with him. And, um, but then you have this drone shot that's pretty epic. Yeah, I mean, we had another drone, um, yeah, up in the air just <laughs> filming. The, and so then yeah. I love his girlfriend's reaction to the girl who's like, have my son. Was the same girl that's hanging onto his neck in the car? She like removes yes. the hand. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, and <laughs> there's got to be a hard position to be in, right? Like, it's overwhelming. Um, I did promise all of you questions. I've, I haven't forgotten my promise. I only have a, a few more. I actually wrote them down, which shows just that I've a little rusty from the pandemic. I never write things down and bring them out here. But um, Ramiro, that's the name of the spiritual advisor. We were trying to remember the guru. So he tells him some really important advice and just tell me about like how that meeting came about. Does he always meet with him? Was it because he was in this crisis at that time? And um, yeah, what that, what that scene means to you in the, in the course of the movie. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, he's a spiritual guy and, and as, as you see in the film, I mean, meditation plays a huge role in calming his nerves and, and, and has been sort of his, his medicine, as he's, as he's dealt with anxiety and depression. Um, and I think, you know, Ramiro has, has been a big part of, of that for him. And so I think as he was struggling with these sort of big ideas of who he is and, and what is his role, um, yeah, he sought the counsel of all the people around him. Um, but, you know, that's why I love making Verite docs. You just, you just never know what's going to happen. Um, but the things, what I find in, in my experience making them is that the puzzle pieces arrive like if you hang in there, all the pieces start just appearing in this magical way, and whether it's a week or it's a year, you know, it's like comes to be. And then, of course, you edit. And that's where it really the serendipity. You can connect all those dots magically. Um, did that what what was the biggest surprise for you in the edit? I think this film more than any film by far, the sort of the arc was quite clear as we were shooting. You know, I think the most of the nuance actually came during that week and in, in, in the subtext. And, and obviously there's a lot that, you know, there, there's juxtapositional energy that we created in the, in the edit room. But I think, um, again, more so than any other, any other film I've ever made, I, I it really was clear sort of what was happening at the time. And it was, you know, fun to be able to sort of, I always believe that context is a slippery slope. You know, I didn't want to make the cradle, the grave Jose film, you know, I wanted to make a really present day, present tense movie. And, you know, I want to give you as little information as you needed to know about where he came from to understand where he is now. But I didn't want to sort of go into all those tropes that a lot of music films have. Um, Actually, I, I wanted to mention that, like, there's no the songwriting or his hair being spray painted or, you know, all the things that you would normally see. There's a little bit of that backstage in between performances, changing clothing and peeing in a bottle and cool little moments like that. But otherwise it is really interesting to see a film about a musician where you're not really seeing any of that. You're not seeing how the songs came together. You're not seeing the rehearsals, you know? Um, I, I think that's really 
pretty great, that choice. But did you, you said you shot a lot of traditional things to make sure to cover your basis and then just ended up being able to leave them out, right? Yeah, I had one of my producers shoot. I'd actually never did, did any of the interviews just because I was like, I so I felt so strongly that we had this verite film. And so that's what I, all my energy was, was put into that. I, I wanted that as a sort of safety mechanism <laughs> um, just in case I was wrong. But um, yeah, I think, you know, I love... I love editing. I love shooting. I, I mean, I, I feel so lucky to do what I do and what we do. And um, I think one of the things I always say, whether it's Cartelland or, or City of Ghosts or this film I just made about COVID, um, is to if we can at least attempt to allow audience members to feel what we felt in that room, in that stadium, in that shootout, in that meth lab, in wherever you are, if we can put you on the ground there and make you feel those emotions, then we've, you know, somewhat succeeded. That's and absolutely so. it. It's, it's, it's about creating a visceral response in the audience. And, and that's, that can be hard when you're not, you know, actually framing something up as a scripted film, you know? Um, but you, you managed to do that really well. I mean, and I was actually wondering if you started the film in Mexico just to get a show as he arrives in Medellin or whether it, it was a relationship to cartel land and, and that you actually, you know, have shot extensively in Mexico and you speak Spanish and maybe that's how you even came on board this film, but there's no relationship there. No. Just- in fact, that was actually the first time I'd been back to Mexico since cartel land. So it was, um, <laughs> no, I think the, the purpose of Mexico is sort of a foil to, to be part of the arrival, um, at, at, of this big homecoming concert. Um, so I really wanted to be with him on that journey. Um, I didn't even plan on, as I think I told you before, I didn't plan on shooting that first concert in Mexico. Yeah. I, I just, when he walked out and all those cell phones were um, shining, I just grabbed the camera and, and started shooting because it looked so beautiful. And yeah. So, wow. So the, the coverage of, of the Mexico show is not. Uh, so you were there to get the plane ride in more so than. And, and just sort, of, sort of see how he moves around the stage and see how he relates his body language to the audience. I really was more there to sort of study him. Um, I'm glad up, you shot it. Yeah. And then ended up shooting a few different songs, but, um, and his speech about depression, which is a perfect opening for yeah. the film really sets the tone. Um, I have this chance to ask you, which I don't think even when you were on my show for cartel land, I asked you like, what, what was the original draw to being a doc filmmaker? Like, how did you ever even start? I got rejected from teacher America. I got rejected from film school. Yeah. But that, I, that's because I had been making documentaries in college and they didn't know what those were back then. But um, I'm dating myself now. <laughs> but uh, uh, so, yeah, you got a, a rejected from Teacher America. and Teach, that, teach for te- America. I teach know. for America. I thought I wanted to be a teacher and um, apparently I wasn't supposed to be. And I, I uh, with three of my best friends, we raised some money and. Uh, rented an RV to drive around the U.S. for three months, interviewing kids from all walks of life, from Mark Zuckerberg to drug dealers and cancer researchers, and um, taught myself as I went. And through that process of, of filming, just fell in love with filmmaking and thought it was such a privilege to be able to, through this little piece of plastic or in glass, to relate to human beings. Um, and that, that was sort of it. And, and, and how did you get Mark Zuckerberg at, in, on a whim? Like that, 
That's very interesting. It was 2005. He was, I filmed him literally moving into his first office. I mean, (laughs) we, we emailed him. I mean, he wasn't like a, he was nobody then, but. Wow. That's amazing. Um, I also fell in love with documentary filmmaking, driving across America. So we should talk about this sometime. That was like my first foray. I was like, wow, this is amazing. If I ask somebody a question, I'm holding a camera, they actually answer it. And then it's more interesting living life this way. And so it just kind of went from there. But um, then I think really when I got to know your work was Cartel Land. Did you make several films before that that we should be digging out and looking at? No? Not necessarily. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you can if you want. Um, I mean, I was from that film, which became this little film called Our Time. Oh, that's the name of your production company. Yeah. Got it. And then I was really fortunate to get a job at HBO where I worked on this uh, film series called The Alzheimer's Project. Um, then I made a film on healthcare called The Scape Fire. And then I made Cartel Land. So Let me not fail to ask you about your new film that you just mentioned about COVID. Um, yeah. You just finished it yesterday. Is that right? And then flew in here to talk to us. And now you're leaving. Finished it uh, last week. Yeah. Last week. Yeah. Okay. So can you talk about it at all? Uh, yeah. I mean, I, um, spent about four months, uh, from sort of March to June in New York, um, filming in a hospital in Queens, following a few, um, doctors and nurses and, and patients, uh, in an ICU, um, and it really sort of became a portrait of New York. Uh, it's called the first wave. So, wow, that's going to be really, I'm, I'm sure you saw just the full range of human emotion in that and tragedy. And, and then everyone here is wondering if you caught COVID and the answer is, I know the answer. I did. I did not get COVID. No. It's amazing. N- nobody on your crew caught COVID. No. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, did you learn anything new about human beings in that like resilience or something about what was your big takeaway? Do you think from making that and going through that trauma? I don't want to use the the voice of Medellin Q and A to talk about COVID unless you want. No, just, I mean, just curious about that. I mean, then I'm, I will ask one last question and open it to the audience. Um, no, I learned, I mean, this past year has changed all of us, uh, and, many different ways. And I think, uh, yeah, I mean, the film sort of runs the gamut of, of the human experience of life and death and, um, birth and sort of everything in between. And again, like, like most films that I've made, I, I felt extremely privileged to be able to, to be there during this like you know, historical time I'd always made these films about different places in the world and to be able to make a film about my own city yeah. that I've lived in for a long time. And, um, the original intent of the film really was to be an homage to the amazing heroic work that frontline healthcare workers were, were doing every single day. And so that's why, you know, I originally started making that film. Amazing. Um, and then I just wanted to ask you what you related to in Jay Balvin you know, we talked about Ramiro for a second and, and what I wanted to touch on there was Jose, Jose versus Jay Balvin and putting Jose first. And you kind of come back to that beautiful move where you have that deep breathing at the end. But tell me what, you know, what made you decide to make a film about a person who you weren't necessarily a fan of? And um, I wasn't not a fan. I just, I wasn't 
super aware of his, his music before I made it. And it that, wasn't like making a film about David Bowie or something, you know what I mean? Or some huge influence right. for you. I mean, he's a, obviously a massive star and one of the most streamed artists in the world. Um, I, I just personally wasn't super aware of his, his music before, but now I am, obviously. Yeah, I love um, it too now, thanks to you. I'm sorry, I missed the question. The question is why did you make this film? Like what was the emotional connection or like you didn't know there was going to be a street war? You know, you didn't know you're going to have a verite film per se, but why, why take this on? You know? Yeah. Like, I think what, what um, was the, what, what did you see in him that you thought we should see in him? You know? I mean, I think, uh, I saw someone who, who was really vulnerable and, you know, I think, you know, on the surface he had everything. Um, I mean, that's the whole tension between Jose and J Balvin, right? Is that this, he's a, the J, J Balvin that everyone knows is 46 and a half million Instagram followers is a sort of playboy, fancy cars, you know, jewelry, as he says, and but he's a really sensitive soul. And, um, that also is a bit of a trope in, in music and celebrity, you know, and athletes and everything of sort of these two dualities of a person, but, um, it was particularly stark in him. Um, and, and I think that, the tension between the public facing J Balvin and the interior Jose, I think is, is sort of at the fulcrum of, of, of a lot of his anxiety and a lot of his tension because at, at his core, he's just a, he is a really normal guy. And, you know, that scene in Camino Trece when he's going to see all the fans and it's the photo shoot and, um, it's really him. I mean, it, he talks to the little kid running up to him in the same way that he talks to Jay-Z or that he talks to me or he talks to you. I mean, he really treats everyone the same. And I think that's a really beautiful thing. So, um, yeah, it was a, it was a really, I feel extremely lucky that he made himself so open. Um, I think it's very rare for people that famous to do that. Um, so I have a tremendous amount of respect for him and I, you know, I had an amazing, amazing crew in Columbia that, that helped, um, make the film possible. And, um, yeah, it was just a really, it was a really special experience. Yeah. He, I, I mean, I think the whole metaphor also of him coming home and then coming to home to himself, you know, and come, having to like really dig deep, it all really came it thematically. It was a beautiful kind of holistic experience, you know? Um, so I love the shot too. I, I'll never forget that picture you put in of him with paint splatter on his face in Miami, just struggling by day and night to make it, you know? Um, and then when he does, it's not like, yeah, he's, he doesn't lose that part of himself. You know, I love how he says he can never turn down anybody taking a picture with him. And then you see that at the very end of the film, like people are, he's like literally putting his window up and down to like let people in. <laughs> so it's great. Um, I want to open it up and make sure that other people have a chance to ask Matt questions uh, right there in the center, in the back. Yeah, and I meant to say also thank you all. For, I know this is a strange experience to be back in a theater, and it was really, really special to, to first of all see it on a big screen in this amazing room, but also just to be with people. So I know it's it's hard to reassimilate into the world. So thank you all for for coming here. Um, yeah, it was it was also I mean it was a different experience shooting Verite with with Jose. I, I knew how comfortable he was with cameras, so. In most of my Verite films, it's it's often just me alone, you know, shooting, and that's that's where I feel most comfortable as a director or whatever I am. Um, 
this because I knew he was so comfortable. I could, I, I, I sensed it, and I tested it, and and then it played out. And so we ended up having um, for a lot of the verite through the week. There's two different DPs um, often with him, uh, and I was you know right there with the monitor and sort of yeah. But it is a way different experience for me. Um, I just seen this movie uh, Waves. I don't know if anyone's seen it, but um, I thought it was a really, really beautiful film. And so I reached out to the DP. Um, it's a narrative film. And he'd never shot a doc before. And I had another DP who's, you know, a sort of veteran doc shooter. And I decided right before the, like, literally as we landed in Mexico that I, I wanted the narrative DP to shoot the verite and the doc DP to oversee the concert. And I think that was probably the, one of the better decisions I made. And it was really fun to see uh, Drew, who shot Waves, work in a verite environment because he was so instinctual. And it was like a really fun thing to see. Um, I, I had made a film, a narrative film called A Private War, and it was really lucky to work with uh, Robert Richardson on that. And, you know, we shot a lot of that similarly in a a sort of a verite way. And I'd always dreamed of having Bob shoot a um, a doc with me. So I guess this was sort of the closest I got to that. For for this film, for probably 60% of it, I wasn't shooting the the actual like day-to-day verite. Um, I was, yeah. I was, I mean, I was there, but I wasn't um, holding the camera. And then, and then for some of the more intimate scenes, that, that was just me alone with the camera. Yeah, his his uh, his his team was was behind the film. Um, we, I was, I, it was a requirement for me in making this to have final cut. I knew there was a lot of players involved, and um, that was just it was mandatory for me to have final cut um, on this. So. Um, Luckily, there's no issues, and you know he's been really gracious with the film and this time and in marketing and everything. So, um, and part of the reason I didn't shoot going back to the previous question is that I it was it was I was able to re- establish rapport with Jose quite quickly, but as the sort of cast of characters was coming in and out, I would <laughs> it was constantly dancing and explaining and trying to make people feel, feel comfortable and get used to the sort of this fly on the wall approach. So it was, it was just a constant dance throughout, throughout that week. Yes, back there. Yep. We, we, didn't, we didn't use anamorphic lenses. We used um, a, a camera called the Sony Venice. Um, and actually used like predominantly extremely cheap, just Canon, like $500 lenses. That, that I, I'm sort of really dogmatic with the lenses that I use. I use this. Canon 17 to 55 and a Canon 24 to 105. And that's what I use in Cartel. And that's what I use in City of Ghosts. And that's what I sort of required us to, to use on this. Um, they're not great lenses, but they, to me, they're the, the best way to shoot Verite. Um, so thank you. Yeah. I thought that it's, it's not surprising that it's Sony actually for the, the green is just like, it just, the color is incredible. And, I also thought it was really interesting that he's just so colorful. His land, his world is just color. 
his house, his clothing, everything, and he's struggling with so much darkness underneath it all, you know? Yeah, I mean, and I think we, I always want, sort of going into it, and, and especially there, really wanted to make Medellin a character. Um, you know, besides his efforts to sort of destigmatize mental health, he'd done a lot of work trying to show the world that there's more to Medellin, more to Colombia than just drugs and Pablo Escobar. And so sort of making, making Medellin a character, the energy, the beauty, the love, um, a character was, was really important to me too. I also thought the score was awesome and I, it felt like they were friends of his or so how did you find those composers? How did they come to be part of the project? So I worked with the same composer. I, I've always used um, H. Scott Salinas. And then I wanted to have a lot of the sounds of Jose in the score as well. And so I, he has this sort of wonder kid producer. I think he's like 24 years old, Scott, Sky Rompindo. Um, and so Sky came in for a few days and just sort of gave us a bunch of beats and, and a bunch of sort of almost like wild tracks that we incorporate in the score. And then he's, he scored a few specific songs, we ended up using just a lot of sort of um, yeah, almost just like wild sounds that that incorporated into the into the score to make sure that it wasn't a huge juxtaposition between the energy of of Jose's music and the score itself. That's, Although I did want that juxtaposition, cool. but I didn't want it to be like you know a huge chasm. No, it was like this. It was like a rest. It was like restful coming off those songs, but it was like it, it felt a one. You right. know, it felt like a piece. Um, but it's interesting you work with the same composer all the time. It's a very intimate relationship then, like, at, across every film. And that person must be very... What's his name? Very uh, H. Scott Salinas. Super uh, versatile composer. Do you also use the same uh, other crew members that are the same? Or is it pretty much a different team for every film? I've, I've sort of varied it up a bit over, over the years, but um, I, I like working uh, often with with the same people, you know, I think it's, it's, it's the best, it's a, but you know, it, you have a family and, and you, yeah. you grow with that family. And, um, but you know, I think each film requires a different set of, uh, characters depending on what the subject matter is. So. But that collaboration must've been really fun to throw one of Jay Balvin's guys with your composer and it worked. Yeah. It's neat. All right. Another question from the audience in the back right there. For sure. Yeah. I mean, I think, he was sort of damned if he did and damned if he didn't. Is that That's the expression? Right. Um, you know, I think all, for the most part, he was, he was um, you know, he got a lot of good feedback for what he did. I think he, he got a lot of hate too. You know, people didn't think he said enough. People didn't think he, you know, he didn't go as far as they wanted him to. Um, and yeah, some people said he didn't go, you know, yeah, they sort of ran the gamut of, of people who were happy with what he said and who, people who weren't happy with it, what he said. And I think the interesting thing is that when, you know, as I'm sure many of you know, is that, you know, Colombia has been undergoing, you know, massive protests again over the past couple of months um, as the film's been released. And that same sort of trajectory that, that you see in this one week during the film um, has has been rekindled um, both on the streets of Medellin, but also within Jose himself, you know, people looking to him to say something, people not happy with him with what he said and, and that same sort of debate. So 
whether how much he's grown from that week um, has has been sort of uh, you know debated a lot. Anyone else? Right here. Yeah. That's a very good question. I can't say I, I've thought about that. Um, I, I think, I don't know. I think on one hand, and, and I'm sure people in the audience might not be happy with this answer, but I, I empathize with Jose. You know, I feel like my, I, I generally try to not make my films political, although they are extremely political. You know, I, 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 most of my films are about very topical things, but I keep myself out of them. When I do press, I don't like to bring my own, you know, I'm, I have very strong feelings about this world and, and our government and our government over the past four years. Um, but, uh, you know, I really, to me, our world is divided enough. And I think that film and documentary film has the ability to bring people together. And that's, that's sort of, um, the small little role that I feel like I play in this world. Um, so while I didn't necessarily totally agree with his stance, I, I could understand and empathize with his, his, um, reluctance, I guess, to, to sort of enter into that debate. Yeah. That, I don't know if that answered your question. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, I had a really talented group of editors um, from both Columbia and the States. Um, there's four of us and then me. Um, and it started out, you know, sort of a pandemic story. The 85, 90% of the film was cut pre-COVID. And then we locked the last 10% um, sort of as COVID was, was entering the U S and as I was starting this other doc. And so it was, it was a strange thing to, I, I'm a very hands-on person, um, probably to a fault. And, and so, yeah, it was, it was strange to do so. I generally, when I start out, um, first of all, when I, you know, I probably said this on the stage before, but when I was 21 years old, I heard Al Mazel say, if you end up with the story you started with, then you weren't listening along the way. And I think that's good advice for life. And I think that's good advice for filmmaking. It's don't be dogmatic, be open to the story changing. And that's something that I've, I've really held close to my heart, both in my macro decisions in my career and on a sort of frame to frame, um, minute, second to second while shooting frame to frame in the edit room way. Um, and Generally, when I start, I sort of write uh, a treatment um, and then like sort of a, a long outline. And generally, by the end of the a film, it's treatment number 49. You know, it goes through tons. I'm constantly reevaluating and challenging my own perceptions. And I, 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 I screen the hell out of my films. I screen it for hundreds of people. I mean, this COVID film that I just made, I probably screened it for 500 people. Um, I love getting feedback. Most editors hate that, but I always love storing whatever information I can in the back of my head just to see what people, you know, because, you know, we're not in just some little castle, you know, twisting our mustaches. Ultimately we want people to see our films. Right. And so I, I love getting feedback to know what is connecting with people. What's not connecting with people, um, is what I'm intending to do emotionally, intellectually, viscerally, 
happening or is it, or, is it, or am I just dreaming it's happening? Um, so. Yeah, even with the scripted film, they say there's the film you write, the film you shoot and the film you edit, you know, but with docs, it really is like my favorite thing is it breaks down all of our preconceived notions that we didn't even know we had in the first place. And by the end, we're just like, oh, I don't have any judgments, you know, and now I have to make the whole audience feel that way. You know, do your test screenings, are they homespun? Are they like 20 people and clipboards afterwards? Um, or is it like 500 people at once? like five screenings of a hundred people. Like how did you, how do you break it down? I generally go to sort of, I have like rounds. I go through like people I trust first. Um, and then I go through other people I trust. And then I go through people I don't know. And, and then, then you have I, the original people back. Sometimes I bring people back and then, you know, I don't, and then I sometimes do like actual focus groups, not like ones you pay for, but like, and un, un, people just ones. do not know you. Right. 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 Um, yeah. I yeah. love test screenings too. Then they and even just watching a film with people who haven't seen the film, you the the criticism that comes up in us, you know what I mean, and seeing through their eyes, even if that's not what they're seeing, but just as soon as you're screening it for any kind of audience, it's like a whole, you know what I mean. I end up like re, I always end up like throwing the film up in the air at that point, right after a test screening. It just takes a big turn, usually. Yeah, those are big moments. Okay, well. Thank you. Thank you so much for making this and bringing the, and coming all the way here and sharing it with us. Um, yeah, it's the first time I've seen a film since the in this theater since they redid it, which I guess was right before COVID. So to see this, I felt like I was at a concert. It was awesome. And it was a great concert. So thank you for for yeah, for chatting and, and thank you all for for coming. It meant so much to me. So thank yeah. you. Good job. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. If you'd like to hear more from our documentary series, check out episode 257, featuring director Nanette Burstein discussing her documentary series, Hillary, with Rebecca Camisa. You can find past episodes of The Director's Cut wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening, and have a great week. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.